Welcome to Boston Basic Income. I'm Alex Howlett. This week's topic is workers versus consumers. When is it useful to think of workers and consumers as the same people? Does basic income create a disconnect between those two roles, and is that a problem? The mainstream view in economics and just in our culture is the idea that people get their money from jobs, and then they go out and spend that money to buy things from companies who hire people and pay money to the workers. So the consumers and the workers, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. One person is a worker who earns their money, and then they're also a consumer. So these are two roles that everyone plays. And then the question is, does it have to be that way? And I I think basic income, because it's income that you get that's independent of a job, can kind of call that into question a little bit. We read two articles this week, or some of us did. The first one was by Robert Reich from 2011. It was a blog post entitled, Stock Tip, Be Worried Workers Are Consumers. And the second one was a 2012 article on Big Think by David Baraby entitled, When Consumers Forget They're Also Workers, Everyone Suffers. So I want to start with a quote from the first article from the Robert Reich blog post. And it just goes like this, repeat after me, workers are consumers, consumers are workers. With that, I want to go around and get people's initial thoughts on this question. We'll start with Avi, and then we'll go to Richard, and then we'll go to Bethany. Go ahead, Avi. I think my initial thoughts on this is that it's definitely true that people like to have this division between like you're even, you're like an employee of a company and that's separate from like where you spend your money on, but where you spend your money on is also dependent on like where you're working. It's very interconnected. There's one song I like to mention, 16 Tons. I think it's a really cool song because it talks about how like coal miners that day, like they would mine coal, but they would actually get burned dead. So Avi, you're breaking up a little bit. Let's go to Richard for now and we'll go back to Avi later. There already is a group of people that is disconnected from working and that's the wealthy. They get their income from dividends and things like that. So they don't need to work. And that's sort of like the so-called freedom dividend that Andrew Yang proposed about two years ago, I guess. And a freedom dividend is essentially a basic income. So you don't need to be a worker in order to be a consumer. Yeah, I think that's right. That's kind of the obvious thing with basic income is that you don't need to be a worker to be a consumer because you get your income from somewhere other than a job. Let's go to Bethany, Neil, and then Derek. I liked what Richard just said. Um, and of course, retired people are a really large proportion of the population that is not necessarily working for money and it's also spending. So I think always it's going to be a subset. The workers are always going to be a subset of the consumers. And of course, with the basic income, all the more so perhaps. I think I wanted to point out a couple other things about that. So one thing that happens is effects on price that might affect consumers or like just general effects on like efficiency of the economy or all these different kinds of things tend to be kind of diffuse. Like they might affect each consumer a little bit, whereas effects on specific jobs have this huge effect on a smaller subset of the population. So I'm thinking of like tariffs on a certain industry, let's say it's on steel, might make a lot of different products more expensive in the economy, but they also might protect or save a large number of jobs. So what I think can happen politically is that you have these people who are really motivated to fight for their jobs and a lot of other people who are affected, but the effect is very diffuse. And so nobody's really that motivated to save, you know, I don't know, $10 a week or whatever the like price differential might be for them. So even though there is a social welfare hit, the, the politics 
politics can skew towards people protecting the jobs because that's a huge sort of all or nothing as we've often talked about where your quality of life is vastly impacted. And I think all the more so because certain jobs are hard to replace or it might be hard for certain people in certain industries to get other jobs that are equally high paying and, and things like that. So I think there's that imbalance in the way that the effects work that can really affect our politics around the two things. And it might be interesting to get into a discussion about what this might look like with a basic income. Would you still see that? Would it be to the same extent? That kind of thing. That is a great question because even in a basic income world, you're still going to have individual workers who, if they lose their job, in terms of overall society, people might be better off, but that particular person is going to lose a lot of income. And the amount of basic income that increases as a result of that is so diffuse that that person doesn't notice the positive effects. So you might have these incentives to make pro-job arguments and protectionist arguments and that kind of thing. It's an interesting question. Let's go to Neil and then Derek and then Austin. Bethany stole my thunder, so I have nothing to add to what she said. I happen to be one of the retired people who don't work, and yet I can sue. That's all I have to say. To that point, I think some economists would say that everyone's a worker and consumer, but it might be distributed differently throughout the course of a life or something like that. That's kind of how they get around that. Let's go to Derek, Austin, and then Eddie. Yeah, Robert Reich's article, I think at least pays lip service to the idea that not every consumer is a worker, but both of them, both articles are still in that same framework that the economists are trapped in, where it's seeing these two things as two sides of the same coin necessarily linked. When you do that, you get trapped in this this series of trade-offs and everyone is trying to balance the benefits for one one role that is a cost for another role instead of actually just trying to figure out what benefits all people all roles right so like an example that would be i mean you know robert has the interesting observation that he thinks that henry ford did a smart business move by raising his workers wages and there's all sorts of reasons why you would raise the wages of a worker but to stimulate purchases from your own business is not really one of them that's not really how how it works, right? So he's trying to make that case and doesn't seem too convincing. I guess the thing I'll just say for now is like, I think what some people forget that they're they're worried about the costs that workers pay. They're worried about the social costs to workers of consumption, of better products, of more efficient production and the costs that the workers pay. I think what maybe people forget is that work is a cost to a worker, right? And the point of paying a wage to a worker is you're compensating them for paying that cost, for losing their time to do work that, you know, maybe arduous, maybe, maybe not, but it's still a cost, right? We'd all like to do what the Big Think article talks about, which is, you know, spend more time with our families, right? So I think the big neglect point is that we can we can help workers by reducing the extent to which they feel pressured to work in order to live and exist in the economy. Yeah, we can help people by reducing the extent to which we force them to be workers in the first place. I think that's a really good point. And you made a good point about Henry Ford too. Even if your workers are spending 100% of their money buying your own product, you're going to still be getting a loss from that, right? Because you, you pay the worker salaries and then you also have to pay for the parts and, and other things to, to build the cars. And then you're running a loss on that. So there has to be, you can't just, the argument can't just be you pay them enough to buy a car and then they buy all your cars and then suddenly you're making a profit or something like that. It has to be something else. Go ahead, Austin. I had one thing I wanted to say, but you guys sort of started talking about the articles. And I just wanted to say that I think the articles are both pretty weak, right? Just because they both say investors watch out or consumers watch out as if that's the point at which decisions about labor conditions are being made when it's just not like there's the idea that we can make consumption choices to pressure better behavior by business. Like I buy free range eggs, not cage eggs, blah, blah, blah. But I think that's very limited. But what I wanted to bring up was about the topic more generally. It's um, the movie True Romance. by um, It's an early Quentin Tarantino script. I forget who it stars. But the protagonist, it starts with him going to a, um, 
a movie theater and he meets a girl there and she really likes him, he thinks, and it turns out that she's a prostitute that his friends have got for her, right? But they wanted to pretend it wasn't a prostitute and that he'd earned her affections by his virtue and his good looks and so on to give him an ego boost. That is what I think about a lot of the time when I think about the, the job market at the moment, right? Like every, there's, there's this idea that work gives you dignity and work gives you a sense of identity. And if you haven't earned, like sort of gone into the jungle and fought for your food, that somehow, you know, you're a pathetic parasite on society, right? But of course, everyone is constantly organizing society to make it so people have jobs. So what's the achievement, right? Like that you haven't actually, it's a sort of a, it's like when parents set up a game for kids to make them feel like they're doing something useful when they're not. And I think when we imagine a world where the money for consumption and the money for labor are increasingly decoupled, we can imagine what a truly competitive labor market would look like. And what's interesting is like, I think how that changes our obligations as people, right? So right now, the overwhelming obligation is to work. And I think in that place, the overwhelming obligation if there was a social pressure would be like work on yourself till you're actually till you actually have something really unique and special to offer work on yourself until you can do something really well and people are interested in it right and do find something you like so that process of getting good doesn't suck right and we can imagine a very like um, I don't. I don't think we should separate income and uh, labor entirely, right? Like the Chicago Bulls are better than a free team that doesn't get paid, right? Like the NBA is an example of money and skill correlating, and there are places where that's the case, right? But there are other places where it's not, and where intrinsic motivations rather than extrinsic motivations are better, and we want to let that loose as much as possible. That's great. I love the true romance analogy. Uh, Christian Slater and I think Patricia Arquette are in that movie. It's a good movie. So yeah, you're always going to want wages to provide an incentive for people to do things. And I think the issue with basic income, or one of the problems that basic income solves, is that it means we don't have to use wages for anything else. We don't have to use wages as kind of the general source of people's income, that kind of thing. We can leave it to just be providing an incentive for useful work. So let's go to Eddie, Joan, and then Avi. I think one of the things that Robert Reich, I think he's being a little bit tongue in cheek, but um, if you really wanted to use the things he's talking about for investment advice, I think one of the things he misses is that the idle capital that you get running up into a Great Depression situation actually generates these enormous asset bubbles, which is could be positive for investors. But I'm glad we're doing a, a thing about the consumer worker. Um, a lot of you guys know that this is one of my favorite relationships. It's one of the primary ideas in capital consumption theory with the paradox of the worker consumer. So Alan Watts talks about this example where a businessman builds an automated factory, he lays off all his workers, and then he turns around and finds that he has no customers to buy his products from his automated factory because they're all laid off. They all have no jobs. And that is, I think, a very good description of a certain state that the economy can get into. And so the paradox of the worker consumer is the idea that there is a theoretical positive feedback loop between consumer spending and labor income. And the only thing that you have to believe to believe that this would theoretically be true is that an increase in consumer spending will, with a delay, cause businesses to have more demand for production and need to hire more. And so it will cause an increase in, in labor income. And also to believe that 
an increase in labor income will, with the delay, cause people who are earning more money through their labor to spend more money in the economy. And so, if you believe these two relationships and you add those up, you know, in systems theory, you've created a, a positive feedback loop where, as one rises, it causes the other to rise, and that. Causes the first thing to rise again, which is you know it's similar to in everyday experience when you have feedback with the when you get your microphone too close to the speaker, and what happens is you start off with a small sound, uh, it gets amplified to the speaker, and then it goes back to the microphone and it gets even louder, and so very quickly you end up with a volume that kind of explodes up to the upper limit of the system, which is the loudest that the speaker can get. Cool, yeah, and just to clarify, the difference between a positive feedback loop and a negative feedback loop is that in a negative feedback loop, the amount by which it goes up decreases every time. So you get a little bit back and forth, and then it kind of stabilizes at a certain level, whereas a positive feedback loop is accelerating, and that's when you get like the feedback sound uh, that, that Eddie was describing. So yeah, that feedback loop is interesting because it's pretty much the mainstream view kind of assumes this feedback loop between workers and consumers. But in a basic income world, if you you are providing income to people through basic income and bringing it up to whatever the economy can sustain, then that feedback loop disappears. Because even though individually people are getting paid to work and receiving income, if their incomes decrease, then that increases the amount of basic income we can afford to give people. And if their incomes increase without productive capacity increasing or something like that, that maybe decreases the amount of basic income we can afford to give people. So it really decouples. Basic income can really decouple this feedback pattern where people's increased wages, increased incomes from jobs will cause increased consumer spending and back and forth, right? It just kind of, uh, it can disappear if basic income is in the picture. Go ahead, Joan. I'm kind of in the minority here, but I'm listening. I haven't yet accepted the idea that those two things are decoupled as you have all kind of accepted that the work is decoupled from the consumer or the worker. And I think what was most interesting to me about the articles was in the second one, I forget the author was talking about the treatment of the worker as a result of consumerism. So for example, making the iPhone with a glass cover instead of plastic at the last minute, and then speeding up the production cycle. And the idea that because it's visionary, that that has to be done when in fact it doesn't have to be done that fast. I mean, it maybe can be done, but it doesn't have to be done, you know, within six weeks. And that's all about the fear of somebody else coming up with the same idea and the competition that ensues from that. So there's another, it seems to me, interesting aspect to the connection between the worker and the consumer, which is that the consumer part of it is often over, you know, it is an overreaction to getting out better products, better products faster. And that falls back on the worker who's then under more stressful, harder conditions in order to satisfy that part. So, I mean, I haven't really, I mean, I guess I, that's that part that I'm interested in hearing more about. And then the other part is somebody talked about it's, and maybe it was Neil brought up the idea that it's not really that it's decoupled. It's that it's differently distributed. I don't think that consumer and worker can really be decoupled, even with a basic income, because it doesn't really make sense to me. It ha there has to be a connection. Uh, otherwise, there aren't any products. I mean, somebody has to make them. If they're not directly connected, that's something I'd like to hear more about. But I think that it's really more about they're not distributed and connected in a way that's even that we can see across all workers and all products. So I'm not ready yet to accept the idea that the introduction of basic income would do anything except maybe 
slow down that or break that connection. I don't even know if that's a good thing. Interesting points and great questions. By the way, Eddie says in the chat that he agrees with you that even under a basic income, the connection between workers and consumers does not disappear. Uh, so this is certainly something we can talk about more throughout this discussion because I believe exactly the opposite of that. Go ahead, Avi. Great points by everyone. I think the one thing I wanted to bring up is I definitely do think that there is a correlation between more work and more stress versus like more spending. I mean, we see in really, really like developed countries, um, like the standard of living is higher. And I think the reason for that is if you spend more time working, you have less time to, you know, figure, figure like your other stuff out. So, you know, a great example of this is food where if you like, if you're, if you're really stressed and like you have to go to work and all that stuff, you might opt out for like fast food or something a little more, you know, convenient. Whereas if you're not working all the time and maybe you have the safety net of like a basic income, you might be able to invest more time into stuff like home cooking. Um, and then same thing goes for, you know, other stuff as well. Again, like convenience costs money. So the more effort and the more time you put into work, like the more money you get, but also that means that the more you have to spend to kind of maintain that lifestyle. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Everybody brought up some really good points. I think to some extent it is true in today's economy that workers are consumers because that's how you get your money. And as Joan was saying, it's also true that if you don't have workers, you don't get products made. So certainly we need to be paying workers to produce stuff. And certainly workers are receiving income through their jobs, which they can then spend as consumers. So all of that is true. The question is whether the level of consumer income in the economy is somehow determined by by the level of wages. And if you're adjusting the basic income based on the level of consumer spending the economy can handle, then a decrease in wages kind of across the board just means that the proportion of people's income collectively that they're getting from wages has decreased. So more of the income is unconditional and less of it is in exchange for you know, having to do something, right? I like to say that wages are coercive. So you could imagine a hypothetical world where everybody just naturally does all of the work that the economy needs. And that's great. You don't need any wages because you don't need to pay anyone to do anything, right? That's the kind of ideal scenario is that there are no wages, right? But nevertheless, we live in a world where you have to be able to spend money to buy things. So we need a source of income for people. And the problem is that in, in our world, we definitely do have to use wages to, to provide an incentive for people to work, but we're also uh, increasing wages because we want to increase the ability of people to consume. And in a basic income world, uh, we wouldn't have to do that anymore. We could allow the labor market potentially to be more efficient and only use wages as an incentive. Go ahead, Neil. I just want to point out that the last 10 years in which I was working part-time, I did not need the money at all. There was no incentive from, from, from the wages I received for working part-time. It was purely purely my attempt to, to, to help society. And I actually, I don't know if many other people are, but that, that, that's a very large incentive to me. And so uh, it, it, I just, that it's a fact. And it, and it is a fact that some people will work no matter what. Uh, in fact, most of the richest people in the world, that's that they are not motivated by the amount of money they earn, but by doing whatever they do. They're motivated by not only by status or, or, some, or, 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 by, or by like me, they, they, they feel like they're doing something useful and that makes you, they just turns you on. So anyways, that's, that's the altered view. And I understand that there are a whole bunch of people who just 
don't believe that we exist in the world or, or there are enough of us so that, uh, so that the society can run with, without, uh, and I don't know who, who is right, can run with, without uh, some incentive for wages. So thank you very much. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There are all kinds of incentives that cause people to want to work, to do useful stuff. Uh, and I like to say that most of the important work in the world is not paid, uh, and that we only pay people when we need them to do something different. So the labor market only comes into play. We only need to use wages as an incentive um, when the other incentives aren't doing the trick, right? That's the only time you really need it. So it's certainly not 100% of the time, right? Creating a, 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 an equivalent dollar value of everyone's unpaid labor or something like like that is kind of uh, pu pulling everything into this paradigm of, oh, people's work corresponds to money or something like that. But, but most for the most part, it doesn't have to. Uh, let's go to Austin. Go ahead, Austin. Yeah, so one thing you were saying earlier on, and I think it's relevant about the, um, uh, the you know, people is currently now people get their money from wages and that's where the consumption comes from, right? Um, I think that's, it's less true than people, than we sort of think it is. There's a lot of people who aren't earning money in various ways who are not full-time employed or not um, like the number of, of the, so there was some, there's some different ways of counting it, but I remember one of them, which was like the, you know, the, the participation of the total workforce population or something. So it's not, it was, a, it was anyhow, but it got below like, well, got like to 52% during the worst part of the first part of the year. Right. So that's a drop, but it was already only like, I think, you know, 60 or 70 or something. Right. That's so it's, there are a lot of people who aren't, making their money off wages, but it's sort of um, a little bit shameful. But the other thing um, uh, I was going to say is that this, it reminded me of what, um, so Keynes had an idea about how the identity, I think it's called of uh, spending and income or something like that. Like they, what, every, every dollar that someone makes is a dollar that someone else has spent. And one of the things that Steve King did is, uh, and this ties in with what Jeff Crocker talks about as well, is that he said like, no, that's not actually accurate because you've got to take credit and debt creation into account uh, when you're um, looking at spending. So there's already this gap between um, wages and consumption, and it's currently being filled by debt. Um, and you can then look at the debt and say, is it private debt or public debt uh, as well? But like, it's already a sort of incorrect picture of the economy. I, um, oh, I have one analogy, though, as well, that I, I, someone who knows more about cars might tell me I'm wrong. It's a little bit like a carburetor versus fuel injection, right? Um, in a carburetor, the spinning motion of the engine sucks in more fuel um, and air and mixes the fuel and the air in this sort of like, like, a, like in a you know, mechanical uh, motion, right? Like it spins around and it, and it sucks in air and fuel um, alternatively. And so the engine sort of gets going and, um, and, and rolls over, right? Whereas in a fuel injection uh, engine, you inject the amount of fuel into each cylinder that's required to make that cylinder fire the best possible way and a computer manages it. And I think there's a, slight, there's a bit of a, there's a, a case where decoupling has made a system more efficient, right? Um, and I think it's a similar, uh, it's, it's, it's a sort of a, a way of visualizing it. Yeah, that's the exact analogy that Bob Hockett made uh, when he came on Boston Basic Income with Aaron James to discuss their book Money from Nothing a few weeks ago. And I think that is a good analogy. I want to go to a quote from the Robert Reich article. 
it's not just the jobless who can't spend. It's mainly people with jobs. Median wages continue to fall. Weekly wages in July for Americans with jobs were 1.3% lower than eight, eight months before. This is 2011, by the way. This is when he wrote this. Uh, America's median earners are now earning less adjusted for inflation than they earned 10 years ago. So he presents this as if it's a problem, right? And it is a problem in a world where consumers get their income from jobs, or it's potentially a problem, right? But in a world where if you had basic income, then lower wage levels can actually be a good thing. It means that the lower the wage level, the more, like I was saying, the more income that people can receive unconditionally. Now, you only get wages in exchange for doing work, but that doesn't mean that individual workers won't be upset to lose their jobs, kind of like what I was saying before. The lost wages are not going to be replaced one-to-one. -one. So this kind of gets to the point that Bethany was making about the diffuse effect, right? So even in a basic income world, we're going to have this problem where people don't want to lose their jobs, and they're going to be coming up with reasons for why jobs need to be kept around. So let's go to Eddie. So I want to clarify that I actually do agree with Alex that um, basic income drives a wedge between um, labor income and consumer spending, which are ident in, almost identical without basic income, but the higher your basic income goes, then the farther apart um, those two things can get. And at the same time, I also agree with Joan and I think that the, the two will remain in terms of their, their changes. There will still be a, you know, like a, a relation between the two and the two will still, still be coupled. That positive feedback loop will continue operating um, for quite a long time yet. And it's very interesting to think about when they do become completely um, uncoupled. So I think that the right analogy here is if you think about society, um, as a single household for a moment and ignore the money for, 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 for a moment. You know, you start off as uh, uh, hunter-gatherers and then you start farming and, and, and doing livestock. And then later on, you finally begin to have uh, mechanization and, and productivity growth. Eventually, and so the more, the, the more of that you have, then the less amount of labor that you have. But, you know, currently that kind of difference in terms of the income that you receive uh, in terms of production, goods and services currently goes to the owners of the capital. So it goes to capitalists, it goes to wealthy right now. You know, that's a very small percentage of society, you know, 1%, 5%, depending on where you draw the line. Everybody else is still a worker consumer. If we put the basic income in and provide universal capital income so that everybody is getting capital so that they can take advantage of, you know, the, the physical, the capital of society, you know, eventually in the future, you get to the point where it's like the household becomes wealthy. Everybody is like wealthy, like, uh, you know, financially free or uh, everybody becomes like Neil and they have enough money from their universal capital income so that, you know, they, you know, they're guaranteed survival. And if they work, which a lot of people probably, you know, a, a certain number will, they do it at least partly or even mostly just, you know, because they find that particular work to be to be fun or, or interesting or meaningful. I think you're certainly right that most people or anyone who's a worker is also going to be a consumer and they're going to be using that income 
to consume in the market. Kind of like what Bethany was saying, uh, workers are always a subset of consumers. And by the same extent, income wages is always a subset, is always going to be a subset of total income when we're looking at kind of the aggregates. The question is whether you get this feedback loop anymore, where higher wages lead to higher total incomes. And I'm skeptical of that. And the same thing, lower wages leading to lower total aggregate incomes. It works at the level of the individual person, but if you're adjusting the basic income to get consumer spending up to the level that the economy can handle, that kind of impedes the feedback loop. Like there might be a little bit of a delay where you know the feedback loop starts going a little bit, but then the basic income comes in and pushes back the other way. So you don't get this uh, runaway positive feedback loop effect. You know, I actually think that, you know, after we introduced the basic income, the right thing to do is to have it basically as a, as a Fed policy that they manipulate along with interest rates. And in order to understand how to set that up correctly, you have to understand how, what the effects are in the first place. And so if, you know, I, I may not have, I don't know if Alex, I don't think Alex is convinced quite yet, but if like me, you believe in capital consumption theory and understand that the, um, this, uh, you know, spending labor income, consumer spending um, uh, variable kind of goes up and down on a on a nine year cycle. Then you understand that the basic income should actually be um, sort of a, a very long term uh, lever that the Fed should be should be pulling. They should be increasing basic income right now. Um, that would reverse the positive feedback loop so that instead of going in a negative in a downwards direction so that you know they both they're both stuck at a low level right now and we're stuck at 70 percent capacity utilization uh after you start feeding more income to the consumer <clears throat> that actually reverses consumer income begin, begin, begins going up labor income also begins going up um and you have a situation similar to what we had from the Great Depression into the 1970s. And you also understand that, you know, within about 30, 40 years, you will have um, raised that capacity utilization back up to maybe 90%. And you will be starting to see the effects of inflation, at which point you, you want to kind of hold um, the basic income perhaps steady and, and let that uh, kind of work itself out a little bit. So I think that on the long term, uh, you should be having enough basic income so that the market interest rate is kind of a normal one, around 5%, and that the interest rate manip manipulations should, should be used um, only for short-term effects uh, to counter, you know, regular recessions, which, you know, come and go on a kind of a, like, you know, one year, a one-year basis, one-year, two-year basis. Yeah, I mean, I think a question we can ask is, where are we starting from? If we're starting from a world where capacity is being underutilized, then we start using more and more of it and boosting people's incomes, and then that that also boosts people's wages and that kind of thing. Then you can imagine kind of the cycle where you where you kind of max it out and then come back down again later as, as things get overheated, you know, that kind of thing. Alternatively, you can imagine starting from a world that already has basic income, and you're generally keeping the economy at full capacity, people are able 
able to buy everything the economy is capable of producing for them. And that can be kind of a, a more steady state. And I generally don't subscribe to this idea that there are kind of 90 year cycles or 50 year cycles or even two year cycles. Uh, maybe there are one year cycles because of seasons and it affects agriculture and something like that. But it's not, you know, a lot of these things depend on politics, depend on policy, who's making the decisions, who's, you know, setting the parameters for the economy, that kind of thing. So it's not, you can't just take, you know, there, you look into the past and then every 90 years for a few centuries, you know, something happened. You can't just use that to, to kind of, to kind of predict what's going to happen in the future. At least, at least that's not, not my feeling. Let's go to Derek. Uh, we should definitely have a whole episode about capital consumption theory because it does keep coming up. I mean, just re really quickly, what I like about calibration is that it's focused on the present moment, right? When you're trying to predict the, the future, uh, a lot of people look at it that way because I think we're economists are used to talking about the stock market going up and down and trying to figure out what it does. Um, but of course, this is what tricks people up when they start talking about inflation because they're talking about it like they're trying to predict what it's going to do in two years, five years, 10 years when they should be talking about uh, what are we doing right now to keep the targets where we want them, right? But um, um, but certainly there's, that's a more complicated discussion. I, I just really briefly want to sort of stick up for this idea of decou fully decoupling, in, at least in some sense, uh, very strongly decoupling uh, wages from consumption and and workers from consumers. Um, it sound, it r runs the risk of sounding a little utopianish, but I really do think it's possible that wages are a kind of important but maybe small part of the economy that we've we've really ballooned, that we've given an enormous importance in our kind of econo collective economic worldview. Um, and you don't have to imagine it working that way. I mean, I really think it's a good thought experiment. Um, I mean, first off, just note that people that start businesses, people that start, begin a production process, a new one in the economy, they come up with a new idea and put it into practice, they they work in the in a general sense, right? They're they're putting in effort to start with. They're sinking costs. They're maybe even taking on loans. It's not at all what we think about uh, employees doing. It's not what we think about showing up and working for a boss for a wage, right? That's a very particular kind of work. So we should clarify when we say work. I think maybe what we're really talking about here is is employment, formal wage employment. And I think you can imagine an economy um, as a baseline, as a starting point. You can imagine an economy entirely without that. Uh, it's really simple. All you imagine is, okay, well, you have money and, and you have businesses and people that collect profit for the businesses um, and you have basic income. And the more people who sort of voluntarily decide that, hey, I'm going to go and make something useful, sell it to people, the higher that basic income will get. So you're just living in an economy where there's an extra rule that says, okay, there's no such thing as employees. You're, you're The only way to go contribute to the economy is to go out and start a business that we just really like business owners, right? You could imagine an economy uh, working that way. It's probably just really helpful to, to allow some people to, to work for other people, to, to allow them to get motivated by a wage to contribute to a business or any kind of endeavor. And just the whole notion that the way we, we get our incomes is, is from that particular mechanism. It doesn't really have to be that way. You can imagine a world where, where producers motivate collaborators to show up based on a promise of a, of a percentage of profit in the future if they make one. I mean, everyone's income is taken care of in the meantime, right? Because of the basic income. So why wouldn't you just say, well, okay, I'll just, I'll sign up for my 1% of your profits when you get them, because I think this is a good idea anyway, right? So you can definitely imagine all of the really important parts of the economy working fine, theoretically, without, without wages at all. And I, I think it's just simply useful to let them in the economy as a 
as to let people purchase other people's time, if other people want to sell their time, uh, if it contributes to the economy, I don't see a reason not to do that. It's just not necessary to have it coupled to income, I don't think. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I probably wouldn't go so far as to say that you can imagine everything working without wages. I think there's always people are always going to have reasons to pay each other to do other things. Um, so I think there's always going to be a role uh, for wages in the economy. Um, and I think you, you'd probably agree with that. But you know, I think even today, a lot of the important work that that we do um, is not is not paid work. But because you know money is so important, and because wages are the only are, are Maybe it's not, um, I, I think Austin made a good point before that um, there are a lot of people that are getting incomes that aren't from wages, but it's still kind of the expectation. It's this ideal, both in how we think about the world culturally, but also in our economic models that people get their money from wages. And because it's this important thing that we focus on, um, sometimes when we're focusing on that, it can seem like we're forgetting the rest of, of what's going on in the economy, what's going on in society. Maybe sometimes we are forgetting the rest, um, but I think Derek brings up a good point that there's a lot more to it than, than just wages. Let's Let's go to Jared. Go ahead, Jared. This is interesting. I've uh, been following basic income for a couple months now, but I've never actually uh, really jumped in the fray aside from tweeting back and forth. So, um, you, know, uh, you know, a little bit of what was just spoken about, uh, you know, like acknowledgement uh, that working just for intrinsic means is a little bit utopian. Uh, I, I kind of side on that. I'm kind of a, a hard-nosed capitalist. Uh, I just, I, I see... Uh, you know, too many people working in too many jobs that they probably wouldn't work at at all uh, if it was just for interesting motivation. Um, I do subscribe to the theory that you should chase your dreams, but I believe that sometimes uh, that's after your nine to five job, you know, and, and sometimes I, I also, you know, I'm a father of four, uh, and I believe that there is value in doing things that stink uh, and doing things that are not fun and doing things that you're not naturally motivated to do. I think it builds character. Uh, and I think that's invaluable uh, to the point of saying, hey, you know, let's decouple that and let's, let's move as close as we can to just working for interesting means. Uh, I don't think it's good for a society as a whole. Um, that's just my personal opinion. Um, but that's not the main point I wanted to take. The, the, the biggest point that I wanted to take is going back to uh, if there's going to be a positive feedback loop or a negative feedback loop and what's going to happen uh, with the implementation of basic income. Uh, I also really like the idea of, you know, how the Fed uh, feeds into this. Um, uh, I, I, I really do believe, you know, we, we have seen the impact uh, and the discussion that the politicians have had with what we call a stimulus package. You know, let, let's infuse every person with a $1,200 stimulus package to keep the economy going. You know, and, and that was, to be honest, small beans. You know, that was a one-time infusion, and still there was a huge acknowledgement with all economists that that was critical to keep the economy moving. Uh, now, if you take that and leverage that to uh, every person uh, for every month of the year and every year of their life, I mean, that is a massive, I, I think that's a stimulus package, the likes of which um, I, don't, I don't think we could possibly imagine. You know, I mean, that, uh, the, the size of that is, is just, it's, it, it, ginormous, it's gargantuan, whatever you want to use, it's titanic. Um, and I, I just, it's, it's such a huge, huge infusion of cash regularly into the economy that I don't think we can possibly predict the impact that's going to have. You know, take that with the idea that the top 1%, uh, you know, own what 80, 87% of the stock, right? Uh, and the top 80 people own 50% of the wealth in the United States or in the world. Um, you take those statistics, 
And let's say, uh, you know, on the extreme, and we'd never go on the extreme, but let's say we kill off those 80 people, we take their money, and, and we throw that back into the economy. I'm not saying let's kill the bums. I'm just saying let's take all that money and put it back. Uh, all of a sudden, we've got twice as much cash that we know what to do with. I mean, that, that is so much cash that we've got floating around. We're not going to know what to do with it. I mean, it's going to be so much. Seriously, we, we're not going to know what to do with it. And, and I think people are talking about inflation. Uh, I really like the idea earlier about having the Fed somehow regulate this. Um, I like that idea. Um, you know, in, in my just thinking about this, um, I, I, I mean, I, I kind of think that having an independent review board uh, responsible for the basic income, that's not political. That's not part of the government. Uh, that, that, that people can't vote their way into a higher or lower basic income, I, I think is crucial to the sustainability of a basic income. Uh, there's too many ulterior motives and too many crooks in Washington on, on all sides of the aisle uh, that I, I, I absolutely would not want to put such a huge nuclear option of basic income and the stimulus into the hands of the politician. Um, but what I, I what, so I guess what I'm proposing, and, and who knows where it will go. I mean, I'm just a guy in my basement with crazy hair because I didn't shower this morning. Um, but what I what possibly what could be is, is the basic income is the biggest stimulus to the economy. Um, in addition to wages, in addition to the capital, in addition to investment and debt payments and things like that. But it's so big that that kind of becomes the focal point around which uh, many other policies circulate. Um, you know, my personal opinion is so much cash will be infused into the market and people are going to start spending it. So it's the multiplier effect. It's not just the cash that's going back into the economy. It's the cash then being reinvested and respent and respent. Yeah, you know, the, the volume and the velocity of money. I, I heard a quote that said that uh, every dollar spent by a poor person or given to a poor person, uh, it becomes $2.7 in the economy. Uh, and, a, and the same dollar given to a rich person becomes 1.3. So you know, 2.7, so that, you know, take half that economy, multiply it by 2.7, uh, we've got a, a huge, I mean, a four-time multiplier of what we've got going on right now. Um, and kind of what I what I personally fear is that uh, implementing a basic income will take off so furiously so fast um, that we're going to have to put the brakes on the economy immediately and heavy brakes. Um, and then my last point, and I know i kind of been rambling a little bit, my last point is, uh, what I would like to see is take the Fed and the interest rates back to a more sustainable middle of the road level where we can then respond one way or the other uh, to market fluctuations. Because right now we're redlined. You know, there's not a whole lot of room for error. You know, we've had the, uh, you know, the, the, whether to cross the T or the 10 year yield is, is higher or lower than the, the, the two year, you know, I mean, and I, again, I'm not an economist, you'll figure that out real quick. But we don't have a whole lot of room to error. So, I mean, what I would love to see is the basic income get implemented uh, as a side independent board, but the Fed realizing that this is really going to kick the, the industry and the economy into a high gear and immediately raise the interest rate 12% to 12%, which is to counteract the, the um, infusion of cash by basic income. But then it puts us at a, at a place where, okay, now if we need to raise rates, fine. If we need to lower rates again, uh, at least we've got room to wiggle. Uh, right now, I'm afraid we don't have any wiggle room. So that's, I don't know how much that ties into the decoupling of wages uh, versus expenditure. Um, I don't know if it really does at all, but I think this has kind of been a peripheral topic that I've been keen on. So 
that's it. Thank you guys for your time. Uh, I took up a little bit of time, so but thank you. Yeah, that's fine. Always good to have a new voice on here. I think you're exactly right about interest rates. And this is something I talk about a lot too, that a basic income, if it's high enough, it allows the Fed to tighten back to more kind of conventional levels. So you can get interest rates back to where they need to be to keep prices stable in the context of more money being added to the economy at all times. Because right now we're using the low interest rates and we're using the expansionary monetary policy kind of as a form of stimulus to compensate, to prop up consumers, to compensate compensate for the fact that they don't have a source of money otherwise. And one of the ways in which this ties into the question of consumers versus workers is that the Fed stimulates the financial sector to make borrowing cheap so that companies can hire workers. So it's, it's about stimulating the financial sector to distort the labor market in a way that provides consumers with incomes. So this is one of the mechanisms by which we're kind of using wages as a way of pushing money to consumers. When we have a basic income, we don't have to do that anymore. And I think you brought up you know, a good point about what level of what amount of money can the economy handle being thrown at it? Uh, and the answer is that we don't know. But it could be a very small amount. It could be a very large amount. Uh, you know, people often talk about $1,000 a month, basic income, that kind of thing. My sense is that the economy could handle that. Uh, and we compensate for that, as you said, by the Fed tightening monetary policy and raising interest rates so that there's less money printing going on in the private financial sector. So we kind of rein in the financial sector. And that helps us with financial instability uh, and the business cycle and recessions and stuff like that as well. I think all of those are really good points. If you're curious, we did a whole one of these on stimulus. And in my mind, the problem with thinking of basic income as a form of stimulus is that the way we think about stimulus is that it's kind of to get the economy going, to get businesses to be more active so they can hire more workers. So it still kind of plays into this idea that we're that we want to kind of activate the economy so that people can get money out of it. Whereas if you're thinking from a purely basic income perspective, like that's how consumers get their money, then rather than a form of stimulus, you're giving people access to the economy. And obviously, if you keep increasing the amount of basic income, people will probably start buying more and more. But the point isn't to get people to buy more and more. The point is to give people access to what the economy can produce for them. I agree with you. And I guess what you, one uh, nuance that you were going over is, is what's the cause and the effect you know, is, is the goal to uh, get people working or is the goal to stimulate the economy? Uh, and I, I don't know if that matters tremendously. I don't think you can separate one from the other. Um, a, a, a back point that you were talking about the stimulus and, and the Fed and everything and trying to get money into the economy is I know the U.S. government right now, and, and maybe this is a totally different side note. Uh, I personally believe that the uh, one way that the government uh, stimulates the economy without asking permission uh, is through military spending. And, 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 you know, we look at the military spending and I kind of ask why, uh, you know, spending an extra dollar, uh, how is that going to, uh, you know, are we going to blow up the earth one more time, <laughs> you know, with, with that many more, it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So, um, you know, it, it, I, I think that, and again, this is taking the, the conversation on the side, uh, hopefully a universal basic income uh, is a stimulus route uh, that we then can dial back the uh, the military complex tremendously, um, which is going to add stability twofold. One, the people will have you know more domestic stability, uh, and then if we're not elevating the Cold War type military spending, I may de-escalate situations uh, across the the ocean. Um, and so I, I think that's another you know double whammy good effect of universal basic income. 
Um, but what? But go back to your point about, um, you know, is, is it a stimulus? Are we trying to get people jobs? Um, the answer is yes. It's it's all of the above. So um, that's my only point. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would put um, stimulus and getting people jobs kind of in the same category. And then basic income is not necessarily about jobs and not necessarily about um, you know getting businesses to be more active, but it's about it's more from the consumer from the consumer end of things. Um, I like to think about. Um, in terms of the in terms of the pipeline, the, the policy pipeline, the order in which things happen, you have the government, the fiscal authority, deciding on their taxing and spending, and then you have the basic in. You know, you were talking about having a separate agency or committee or something that that was maybe uh, insulated politically, and that's very similar to uh, what we do with the Fed right now. Um, like, if the Fed, you know, if you could vote for lower interest rates, you know, people might vote for lower interest rates and it would cause inflation and stuff like that. You kind of need to protect uh, basic income in a similar way. So what I imagine is that the government does their taxing and spending, and then the fiscal authority says, okay, well, how much room is there uh, for basic income? And they, um, they bring the basic income up to whatever level gives consumers maximum access to the economy uh, without you know, tipping over into inflation. Uh, and then the Fed, the central bank comes in and says, okay, is there any kind of like um, fine tuning that we need to do through monetary policy by adjusting interest rates uh, to keep the price level uh, stable and mitigate volatility in, in the short run. Uh, so you have the kind of the one, two, three. So the fiscal authority does what they do, does what they do, and the basic income authority has to basically take that as given. They can't change that. So the, and then the basic income authority does what they do, and then the Fed has to has to take that as given. So all of that is fixed before it gets to the Fed. Let's go to Joan. I'm going back to um, a simpler level. Back to when we were talking about, I think it was Avi who brought up the idea that because workers don't have time to buy, they're consuming maybe fast food or convenience foods or whatever. So there's a price differential built into the lack of time. And, and that started me thinking about um, how we're focused on the, on the worker side and the wages side, but not on the product side and what kinds of products and would, if we had only BI, let's, let's say we only had basic income, um, what would be the effect on the products that are being produced? Many of the products being produced now are produced under duress, as I said earlier, um, and as a result of you know, competition and capitalist society and so forth, and to make the biggest and the best and the fastest. Um, so if we're not needing to do that, and, and people have time to make decisions about buying. They don't have to run out you know, when they have a moment to buy something. Of course, it's different now because you can buy online, but <clears throat> how does that change the equations? I don't, I don't know, I'm just bringing it up. It's something that I've been thinking about. Uh, how, how, was, how is the consumer side, the consumption side, the good side uh, involved in this, not just the wages side? Yeah, so the question is, how do you get people to do the work? If the basic income is really, really high, then people will be like, well, I, you know, I have enough money and the wages are very small and I don't want to go do any work. And then maybe the stuff won't get made, right? Uh, so then you have a problem where the basic income is too high and um, it actually won't be able to purchase all of the stuff that it would have been able to purchase at, at the old prices, right? Um, so, the, so the question is, um, how do you get the incentives where you want them? Uh, so when you're talking about 
about how do you get people to do the work, that's a question about incentives. That's a question about, you know, you're talking about people, people being under duress. So a question we can ask is how much basic income do we need to withhold from people? If you can imagine it, like you started, you said you started by imagining that it's all basic income. Uh, if everybody gets all their money from basic income, then maybe there's no incentive to, to go out and earn extra money, right? So how much basic income do we have to withhold from people collectively in order to create enough incentive that the amount of work that gets done is what's necessary, what's, what's demanded by consumers in the economy? So you've got to find that right balance. So you can't just have a world um, that's all basic income. You've got to have, um, you've still got to have wages in there as an incentive to, to, to do additional work. Um, I want to go to the Robert Reich article one more time. Every CEO of every company that continues to squeeze payrolls, Verizon, are you listening, Ford, needs to understand that they're shooting themselves in the feet. Where do they expect demand for their products and services to come from? So, I don't think this is accurate that they're shooting themselves in the feet. Um, they're expecting people to get their incomes from somewhere else. Even in a world where everybody gets their income from wages, an individual company doesn't need to pay its own workers enough to buy its own product. Obviously, if every company behaved this way, it would and probably does create a collective action problem where nobody has enough wage income collectively to activate the economy's full potential. And I think maybe that's the world we're living in, but it's not in an individual company's best interest to pay workers more than they have to, to kind of get them to do the thing. Let's go to Austin. Hey, yeah, first of all, I agree with what you were just saying then about that article. That's what I was saying at the beginning, that it's kind of a, a bad, you're blaming the wrong person because it's not up to an individual investor or consumer, right? Um, it's a systemic thing. And it's what Marx described, right? That you have this crisis where the workers, where the, the individual interests of the, of the employers is different to their collective interest. And they all want to hire the, le the least number of people and they all want to sell the greatest number of products, right? And that's the conflict at the heart of our society. It's been the animating force in politics in terms of the left versus right class struggle narrative and basic income is a way to de-escalate that conflict, finally. Um, one other thing I wanted to say was people were talking about our workers consumers and our consumers workers. Mostly we imagine that in the sense that wages land and then get spent, right? But there's also so much consumption that's to do with work, which is one of the things I think about a lot. The beer can problem, right? Which I always bring up. This is this problem where, so if imagine in a, like a lot of people want to live on a farm, right? Like they want to live on a, like a little farm and grow some of their own food and have a like a woodwork room where they do like build their own furniture and be self-sufficient. And I don't think that's necessarily very, very effective, but people might like it. So if they like it, great, you know? Um, I do it a little bit. We have chickens, right? But the, um, but the, the point is that when you, uh, when you do that, you can't really go off the grid because you're going to need some cash inputs, right? So maybe you need 500 bucks and all of a sudden you need 500 bucks a week to cover, you know, electricity or, or whatever it is. So you go to, you get a job that earns $500, but now you got to pay for the petrol to get there. So now you need $700. So now you take another shift and on and on it goes until you're living in a flat in the city, uh, close to a train station. So you can get to the job, right? Like you get sucked into the, to the economy. So this idea of decoupling goes both ways. It decouples wages and spending in the sense of wages causes spending, but it also decouples consumption and production to some degree in that people aren't spending a lot of money just to get to work to, to get money, right? Um, and so you, you, you create, I think there's a huge 
lost efficiency there um, uh, in the sense that we're creating jobs all the time. And the more low value those jobs are, the, the less deflationary their outcome is. The, the, the less these low wage, I mean, low wage jobs is one thing, but also low value that, you know, serving coffee or um, uh, pumping gas or whatever it is, things that could be automated. Those jobs have um, a high inflationary content because a lot of what the value they're providing is eaten up by the effort of the person getting there, being dressed correctly, um, having a house in the right area, right? Um, transport and, 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 and housing are the two big ones. So housing isn't officially part of inflation. It's a separate kind of thing, but, um, but transport is the other one, is the, other, is the huge. The most of people's transport costs is for work in the world, is for getting to work. So it goes both ways. And that, that means there's more headroom than it might seem like there is. Yeah, I think that's right. I like this uh, beer can effect example. So there's a lot of work that exists as a consequence of other work. Um, but it's also this kind of um, this kind of side effect. So if we are using economic policy to create jobs, then these other jobs kind of kind of come along for the ride. So maybe you don't need to push the lever as hard to get the level of employment to where you want it to be. And that's kind of what the beer can effect uh, does there uh, is kind of how I, how I think about it. Um, let's go to Avi, go ahead Avi. Awesome. So the one thing I wanted to say about this quote is I actually kind of disagree with it. Um, and you can see this in real life where companies just decide to completely outsource their factories. So yeah, I mean, if, if we were assuming that the U.S. economy was the only economy in the world, you know, you could make an argument that, you know, it's somewhat coupled where um, if you start paying your employees less or whatever, like you'll start shooting yourself in the foot. But in the kind of global economy we live in, there's nothing there's nothing stopping, you know, American companies from just outsourcing all their factories and stuff to a place like China, where I mean, the employees in China aren't buying the product, it's the consumers in the US. And that's a situation where it's just completely decoupled, where the people making the product aren't actually buying the product. It's from a different country altogether. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And another example of, of, of a scenario in which people who are making the product aren't the ones buying the product is just basic income, right? Uh, in a sense, basic income turns all of your consumers into kind of foreign consumers because they didn't earn their income as American workers. Uh, and I think, you know, that can maintain um, the profitability of companies um, without maybe this uh, destructive side effect of, of hurting people in China or something like that. Um, but it's not so easy to just say that we need to not uh, employ people in Chinese factories because it doesn't solve the underlying problem of the fact that China is creating uh, conditions for their people such that being in one of these kinds of jobs is better than not being in one, one of these kinds of jobs. Uh, so that's also a tricky thing as well. So it's more, comp we can't really, as Americans, we can't solve this on our end and, and, and make the Chinese uh, workers or the Chinese people better off. China has to do something too uh, at the same time. Let's go to Richard. What Jared was saying before about um, military spending being something that um, stimulates the economy. Well, there's an example of it in the show Veep where her predecessor had a, say so there's this new um, submarine with state-of-the-art VCRs and things like that because of built in the 80s or designed in the 80s. And the uh, all the senator, uh, the representatives and things wanted them to keep the submarine in the budget, but, and the way they, because the reason why they wanted that is because 
they spread the military contractors spread out all the jobs in in all these various states a little single part here single part there and so there's all this incentive to keep it and so they ended up keeping the submarine in it even though it was completely uh useless and this the military didn't even want it yeah i think that's a good point uh that jared brought up you know the military and the military industrial complex is largely a jobs program we did a whole one of these on on war finance and we talked about the military industrial complex but yeah i mean you can see this in all kinds of different places anytime uh jobs are a bullet point in any you know economic policy initiative or anything like that um you know you've got some kind of make work under the surface that's that's pushing uh or attempting to push money to consumers uh through the labor market uh so let's go to the second article now the ideal American store, Adam Gopnik once suggested, would have no employees. Consumers' desires would be met flawlessly by unerring, tireless machines. On the other hand, the ideal French store has no customer, nothing to interfere with the workers' satisfying work and humane schedule. Uh, so that was the, the beginning of the article. Um, and yeah, I think we can all imagine which one of these ideals I believe is worth striving for. I think if you, the less we have to have people work, kind of the better off we all are. Now there is kind of this culture around work where uh, people want to feel like they're contributing to society and and you know um, feel like they're pulling their own weight and earning their living and you know that kind of thing. Um, but the question is whether that cultural stuff is is baked into us as humans or whether it's a consequence of how we've set up society. And, and whether that can change. Let's go to Derek. Yeah, both of those worlds are posited as a little bit fantastic, but but you know one of them is a little weirder than the other. I, I mean, I really think at some point most people's common sense intuition has to be that that the point of having the business is to to get to get customers to to make you know to make the bread that people people buy. And uh, if you imagine uh, businesses where everyone's just, where there's no customers getting away the workers, I, I mean, to me, that sounds really off, um, but maybe that's just because I'm here in, in a basic income world and I've been introduced to this idea, but, um, but it, there's always, there's something fishy about it at root. And I don't, I don't think it is quite normal and natural for us to look at it this way. Um, but just a real quick note on the last quote where, where the, this big question of where, you know, where do we, where do people who cut wages expect demand for their products to come from? Um, is a really funny question. Um, and it's so helpful to just look squarely at, at money, right? And really recognize, okay, well, that's actually what we mean when we say demand. We mean how, where are people getting the money to buy goods from? And it, it really doesn't, um, you know, there's this light bulb moment that I think people have where, where they realize, oh, okay, money is something I really want. Businesses really want it. But most pe most people and most businesses don't create it. If we could just create money, then we would we wouldn't want it. We, we wouldn't be worth anything, right? So it's coming from somewhere. It has to get to us somehow uh, in order for people to spend it. And you know this this idea that it, that that businesses are the one, you know, business owners are the ones that 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 you know give us the money. It, it's not. There has to be something more to the story, right? So these are the points where I try to push, push people to ask ask more fundamental questions about what's actually going going on here. Yeah, I think those are exactly the right points to be making. Let's go to Joan. Go ahead, Joan. So the uh, because you were talking about calibrating the amount of basic income, depending on, you know, whether or not there'd be enough work in society to produce the goods and so forth, and then making people not making people work, but 
enticing them to work, incentivizing them to work with higher uh, job pay would be one way to, to make sure that things get made. But it, it's also true that um, a back to the consumer side, um, maybe people could become more satisfied with less innovation all the time and less, you know, kind of high quality and status uh, seeking kinds of materialistic consumerism, in which case the amount of basic income may not need to be uh, that high. And, and you may not have to worry so much about whether you'll get people to work at jobs or not. They might be able to accept working at places where, for example, they're not so pushed to constantly make things, um, you know, on weekends and over schedule and blah, 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 and all that stuff that's in the article later. And, and that's what I meant earlier about tying in the consumer part, because it's really about what, what goods we want too. It's not just about the quantity of goods. It's also that we've become unable to accept uh, just basics. You know, it's got to be better than that. It's got to be more innovative than that. It's got to be, you know, status, more status seeking than that. So that's a, a, it seems like a missing piece of this. I think all else being equal, people want more good stuff. Uh, and that's gonna always be true. But the question is what happens when they start facing trade-offs? So what does the labor market start to look like in a world where, with basic income where people don't have to work? Maybe people will um, opt out of, of working. Uh, it'll be, maybe become more expensive to employ people. And then we'll keep the basic income lower because people are kind of collectively making this choice that maybe they'd rather work less and also consume less, right? Um, so, but these are all like, we don't know how it's gonna shake out, but we'll find out once we have an efficient labor market. Let's go to the second article again. Of course, people in any developed country are both producers and consumers, but Americans have long been encouraged to see themselves as consumers first and last, to hell with anything that gets in the way of quality and variety at a low price. So on the face of it, this sounds great to me. The, ex the economy exists for the benefit of the people not the other way around. People are consumers first and the workers are there to serve the consumers. Obviously, we don't wanna force people to, to be workers and do the work for us, but as long as we are working to promote the well-being of everyone in their capacity as consumers, not workers, I'm fine with it. So if we give people the freedom not to be workers, then, then I think it's okay. Um, you can have this dynamic where uh, some people are consumers and they're forcing everyone else to do the work for them. And obviously that's not healthy. We kind of want to put all humans on the same level if possible. Uh, go ahead, Bethany. Yeah, a, a few different points. So I guess I'll start and just a quick thought on that, which is at first, I was thinking this is not the ultimate explanation whether we think of ourselves as workers or consumers, but but it is interesting that Europe has taken a different track in terms of how, given that given that people are giving their getting their money primarily through wages, how do we play with these different trade-offs between the consumer and the and the worker? My other points went to some other sort of things we had. So so in terms of the employers paying their um, employees in order to get their employees to buy the product or something like this. I don't think he literally meant it in a, you know, employer by employer basis, but if it, he did, it absolutely runs into your incentive problem that you mentioned before, which is that it never pays the employer back to pay their employees more to, to buy the product. It doesn't work like that. Um, but I think it also actually that sort of microcosm 
points to what you mentioned a lot of the time, which is that some of the money has to go to like the profit or other things. And so there has to be a way besides wages to kind of replenish money in the economy. So as a side note, that sort of thought experiment kind of points that out. Because if you imagine the factory worker, you know, trying to pay wages and also pay for materials and then also get a profit, it's not going to be, you know, there needs to be more money coming in to have the employees actually have the demand to buy the products in the first place. Um, so I thought that was interesting that it highlighted that maybe without realizing it. I also want to comment on a couple of points. Jared made a couple of interesting points that I wanted to comment on. So one, he talked about sort of intrinsic motivation versus needing a you know, wage to incentivize you to work, but maybe also building character by doing things that you don't want to do. So I guess I just, in my mind, at least, in, he may have already been thinking of this distinction, but in my mind, I just want to make clear, it's helpful to make clear the distinction between getting people to do work that makes products, you know, like that they might, so, so if people want to intrinsically do that, maybe we don't need to pay them, but if they don't, then maybe we need to pay them. So that's sort of one thing. And then the maybe value of participating in certain kinds of activities, like feeling like you're contributing or, or being able to withstand difficulty, things like that, that we might want people to have, we might want people in society to have those experiences, but it might not be tied to creating any kind of products that people are buying. And so we might want to think of, I would think of that as kind of a separate goal that maybe would be met in separate ways um, outside of the production in the economy. Um, I wouldn't, I guess, put it this way. I would want to be clear about what the motive is. And I wouldn't want to make it look like you're producing something efficiently when what you're actually doing is trying to give people like grit or something like a grit building experience. Like I would separate those two things or be clear about what you're trying to do in each, in each given case. Um, and Jared may have been thinking that already, but his comment prompted that for me. And my um, last point was just that I think uh, we were also talking a while ago with that with his comment about uh, like stimulus and to the degree to which a basic income is a stimulus. And I think we had one of these also on uh, labor demand. Is that right? So so in that one, we talked about with a basic income, you know, depending on the level, would there be more demand for labor or less? Because on the one hand, you're getting rid of all these inefficient jobs, maybe. And so maybe there'd be less demand. On the other hand, people have more money to spend. Maybe there's more demand then. So so just a point to, to that one where we, we kind of talked about those different possibilities and how basic income might affect uh, labor demand. So there's a recorded basic income podcast on that from this group. Yeah, uh, great stuff. I agree with everything you said, especially, you know, providing people experiences. If people need to go through tough stuff and we want to provide that for them, maybe that takes up resources. Maybe it doesn't actually contribute to the economy um, as an input to actual production or something like that, but it might be something we we want to put resources into uh, if we want people to have that experience, that kind of thing. And people might even pay uh, to have have those kinds of experiences. You know, people pay to run Spartan races or, or uh, uh, less extreme, they pay to be part of sports clubs and, and play soccer with their friends every weekend or something like that. Let's go to Eddie. Go ahead, Eddie. Going back to what Jared said about, you know, just the enormity of um, the fact of, of putting in a basic income that pays people every month. Um, I just wanted to point out that, um, you know, with capacity utilization at 70% in the economy, um, you know, there is an enormous amount of uh, foregone production where if we just, you know, had enough money in the system that people could buy the things that there are already factories and businesses set up um, to produce. Uh, you know, there's room for like seven trillion extra, you know, production, seven trillion dollars in the US of extra um, total income um, that we could have that we're, that we're just foregoing. Additionally, um, you know, in addition to the $20 trillion in, in US treasuries, I think, uh, I think I've seen a figure 
of something like $100 trillion worth of government bonds in the entire world, um, including Europe and, and Japan and, and other countries, well, mainly Europe and Japan, and the interest rate is close to zero. So that's uh, like $100 trillion of financial capital that is sitting in bonds um, earning basically nothing. And if you set up a basic income and you drive consumption up, um, then you know, all of those funds would be incentivized to actually be invested into physical physical capital and build even more, you know, uh, even more, build even more um, factories and businesses. So, yeah, you know, from $100 trillion in financial capital, you know, you might get another $10 trillion of in, increased production and, and goods and services in the world. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. If you promise that you're going to always be giving consumers enough to buy everything the economy can produce, then it becomes worthwhile for firms to build capital because they know they're going to be able to make a profit on that capital. They know they're going to be able to use it to produce things that, that people will buy. So you have these two simultaneous effects if you use basic income as your mechanism for getting money to consumers. One effect is that you no longer have to force people to do potentially unnecessary work as a way of getting money to them. And then at the same time, you are activating the economy to a greater degree. So kind of Bethany brought up with labor demand. Um, it's hard to say whether on net there's going to be more jobs or fewer jobs in a basic income world. It's hard to say if there's going to be on average a higher wage level or a lower wage level. But we know that in aggregate, people's income from wages will be a smaller proportion of their total income. That's something we do know. And Joan said in the chat, people don't want grit, but they get it anyway and then brag about it, but they wouldn't want to volunteer or pay to get it. And I think that's true for the most part, although I think some people do like to pay for these kinds of uh, extreme difficult experiences. And then Avi said, probably because they can get kudos from friends and family. And I think that's right too, right? There's an incentive component here. There's a social incentive component here where uh, you want to reward people socially for pulling their own weight, that kind of thing. Uh, I wonder if some of that wouldn't change in a basic income world. Let's go to Bethany. Uh, this one's just a small point in response to uh, Joan, but I, I have personally paid for things that were difficult, like <laughs> attempting to be character building type things, like really difficult meditation retreats that were physically uncomfortable, or like like you mentioned, a lot of people do athletics or something like that instead. So. Just as a side point, I, I don't know if that's so relevant, but but I think there are things that feel like really hard work, maybe harder work than uh, what we were paid to do, but they also feel like they bring a benefit um, and uh, and then people will do them for free or, or will even pay for the opportunity to do them in the right conditions. That's a really good point. Uh, I remember when you, when you went on that meditation <laughs> retreat in Burma and um, you were not happy when you came back, okay. as I recall. <laughs> Let's go to Austin. You know, we started with this example of the French shop and the American shop, right? And what they're, you know, one without consumers, one without workers. And what they're clearly thinking is that both of those are somehow impossible, right? And the difference is that I think most people in this conversation think actually only one of them is impossible, which is the producer with no consumers, because it's not a shop, you're not selling anything, right? Um, but we could also have imagined a um, German shop, if you will. And in the German shop, the workers want to work the fewest number of hours and the consumers still want the most good stuff, right? Um, and I say Germany because Germany has like the lowest um, or like working hours in the OECD and the highest productivity, according to some YouTube video that I just saw. And that ties in with like, so workers want to, like 
it, I sort of think the German system is the best where you're taking both into consideration. You're trying to balance leisure and uh, the amount of stuff that you have. And a properly um, functioning labor market would sort of allow people to do that within a certain, you know, there's this boundary where at the bottom there's, there's you know, bare minimum survival. And then at the top there's, you know, you have a lot of stuff, but you don't have much time to use it. And everybody sort of picks their bit in the middle um, based on working as much as they want to get as much stuff uh, as they want, right? Like, so people have the option of choosing leisure. Whereas now if you choose the option of leisure, you risk spiraling into uh, complete poverty, right? And of course, what the last thing I'll add on this is this brings in automation because automation allows more stuff for less work. And I think we are, and this is one, you know, a CMT talking point sort of that we, we probably underestimate the amount of automation and the capacity for automation that we've already achieved. But there are some areas I think we can actually look at fully sort of automated sectors of the economy. Um, and the examples I like to use are um, music and farming because this used to take up huge amounts of labor in both cases. And now because of technology, a tiny percentage of the population can provide um, the product to a huge number. You know, one artist can be listened to by a billion people or whatever, right? Uh, rather than having to be in the room with them. So you've got, it's a kind of automation of sound production, right? So that's already happened. And we know what that looks like. People still do music and there's this minor league, right? All over the world, all these minor leagues of people who do music for fun or sports, right? And then there's a professional league of people who are the very, very best. And that becomes um, uh, the employment market. That's, that's, a full, that's what a fully automated industry looks like. Um, and then people are doing stuff for other reasons uh, other than money, like people, um, but, but what that creates as well is the best possible uh, quality of product, if not quantity, right? Because you get the very best, the very best are selected from this pool of people who would do it anyhow. So there's this pool of people who have intrinsic interest in it and are doing it. And the very cream of the crop gets selected and their product gets, you know, replicated or distributed or, um, uh, made so you only need one Steve Jobs to come up with one um, iPhone design, and then everybody, you know what I mean. That like his labor um, is sort of rock star labor, right? Um, and I think that's the direction. So I don't think there's any. I don't think there's less um, innovation or less speed or less um, uh, sort of competition in a basic income automation world. What there is is uh, competition over quality rather than quantity, and maybe I mean speed is always going to be there because, you know, getting there first is always a prize that people want. So I think we have a pretty good idea of what automated economies would look like if we looked there. I think that's exactly right. There might be the same amount of innovation. There's actually probably going to be more innovation because people will have more freedom to spend their time innovating. But I think the article is potentially right that or the article isn't talking about basic income, uh, but there could potentially be less on-demand cheap labor uh, to make those innovations, to kind of realize them very quickly. Like they talked about the, the plastic iPhone screen versus the glass iPhone screen and that kind of thing. I think it's hard to say. I think with the more innovation, you might be able to accomplish some of this stuff uh, with less labor in that world as well. So I would say, let's let's see how it shakes out. Um, either way, people are gonna be better off and you don't know how the labor is, is gonna shake out. Let's go to the article again. So they're referring to another article here. Uh, in Thursday's article, Duhigg and David Barboza describe working conditions at Foxconn plants in Chengdu, where iPads and iPhones and many non-Apple electronics too are assembled. 
Workers forced to use toxic chemicals to clean iPhone screens. People working double shifts, standing so long their legs swell and they end up waddling rather than walking. Workers killed in an explosion that, that could have been foreseen and prevented. They also describe the underlying reason, quoting an unnamed Apple executive. You can either manufacture in comfortable worker-friendly factories, or you can reinvent the product every year and make it better and faster and cheaper. So this is kind of what we're getting at here in the discussion. Um, and I think there's a problem here. Uh, and the problem is that astronauts similarly work in hazardous environments, but nobody is up in arms about it, right? Um, they, cho they chose that job and they knew the risks. The problem in the Chinese factories isn't the hazardous working conditions per se, it's that the workers didn't have a choice. They're being forced to do this work in order to survive, and that's because, I would say, because they don't have a basic income. So then the question is, in a world with basic income where this kind of stuff isn't happening, um, what kind of uh, production would we see out of our factories and that kind of thing? Go ahead, Derek. Yeah, that is an interesting question. So, I mean, th this gets to the crux of it. I think both articles are, and the the the, um, the Apple executive and, and the author are both saying that, well, what's driving this is the consumer demand for a nice product that's, that's you know, better better next year than it was last year. And that's just the way it is. And because of that, uh, we, we have these, that's what we have to do. You know, we have to have these working conditions. And like I don't think that's uh, that's true. I mean, I, I think I think Alex's point is right that like it, there there's all kinds of uh, work that might be necessary to do something faster, cheaper, or better. And then you know the question is what what are what are workers in a position to to get a good wage from? Are, are workers in a position where they can they can signal to to markets, to employers, to firms that they don't like being treated a certain way, and will either one demand much more money, or two will just do something else until they they get their shit together and sorry, and they, and they, uh, you know, install some, um, some more comfortable accommodations. Um, it's really like, I, I think when the basic income is at zero, we, we have the maximum possible pressure for everyone to falsify a preference for work, um, over anything else. And I think that's, you know, maybe what's going on here. Um, a firm, um, it's kind of, it's kind of like if you have, if you have a bad friend or someone who's not treating you well, right. Like ultimately, you have to. You have to. They shouldn't be doing that, but you also have to communicate that somehow. You have to uh, either tell them to do something different, or you have to leave. And I think just the simple ability for a worker to leave um, is such a powerful um, signal to some to to the market that the market's doing something wrong. And when you just flat out remove that possibility for a large number of people, um, there's really no telling. Um, you know, how there's all manner of bad conditions that will be tolerated simply because no one's going to give that signal. No one's going to give the little push that, that forces a business to evolve in a better direction. Uh, it's just very, very hard. So, you know, I think we should be really careful to make sure that when you're looking at that problem, you don't want to tie that to the, the consumer demand for a nice good, because I guarantee that people will always demand a nicer good um, next year than the one they got this year. And they'll always like it if it can come in 10 months instead of 12 months, right? So like that's never going away. That's always gonna be gonna happen. And everything that we consider a basic necessity now was innovated, you know, as a crazy new invention or new luxury a hundred years ago, right? So so that's never going away. And you don't want, you want to avoid, um, you know, making, diagnosing the cause of your problem as something that's just like an inevitable feature of people getting things that they want. Like that's, because it's not going away.
Yeah, I think that's right. That kind of message can be upsetting to people if they think it means that we can't fix the problem, right? Um, but it turns out that there are other ways, other ways to look at this problem. And I think you're right that that Steve Jobs is responding to his own incentives, right? I don't think you can solve this problem through corporate social responsibility, right? You know, getting the corporations to behave more responsibly or something like that. Uh, and you can't get it to, you know, by, you know imploring that consumers, you know, sit back and relax and chill out and wait a couple of years for a better phone or something like that. That's not going to work either. Um, the question we really need to ask is why is China willing to force its people to work under these conditions? And if China fixes that problem, then Apple will naturally have to adapt to whatever the conditions are. Um, so we can do things to try to put resources into making fact safer factories, but it doesn't solve the underlying problem, which is that the way we get people their money is broken. And if the way we get people their money wasn't broken, uh, then maybe factories would have to become safer in order to attract workers and that kind of thing. Go ahead, Bethany. Yeah, um, yeah a lot of what you guys were saying is really to what I was just going to say, which is that there's, uh, it's interesting that people that we are now outraged at a lot of different working conditions, but not at all in sort of at the fundamental lack of bargaining power that workers have. Just sort of to emphasize that about kind of like the labor movement or, or the um, movement to sort of stand up for people we kind of taken for most people have taken for granted that fundamentally without a job you might be homeless or starve or something like that and then there are all these problems that come out of that um, that that people try to address piecemeal like kind of whack-a-moleing all of those problems like the like the specific like toxic chemicals or the hours or this or that but like the fundamental problem from the perspective of working conditions is that unless you are like a skilled worker who has many options you might not you might not have much bargaining power um, fundamentally, and so so other people have to kind of like try to step in and like force the company not to not to take advantage of that. But it's much better to just address that at the source. Um, so that was um, that was my I think that was my my main point there. Um, oh, and, and also as you said about Steve Jobs, I mean it's interesting the um, degree to which pe people in different companies like become incredibly passionate about something that might seem kind of trivial from the outside, but that's absolutely what they're incentivized to do. Like who's going to be the CEO of Apple? somebody who says phones aren't important or somebody who's like, this is the most important thing ever. And like, it probably seems silly from the outside, but I think that will always be the, the case to some extent. Although with the caveat, I'll point out that like, it is true that European culture um, seems to have a different maybe set of incentives and thus a different corporate culture. At least that's what people say. I don't know if that's actually true, but this is what the article is kind of like alleging. Um, so that's a sort of a separate puzzle of like why we went on different tracks there. Um, yeah, but, but I think the, yeah. the appeal to people to just kind of like change their minds about stuff doesn't really make sense. And as Derek said, um, people all else being equal would like to have a better phone faster, I mean, who doesn't, right? And the, and the problem is that the consumers in America in this particular example have no incentive to really, or have very little incentive to really be worrying about the, the Chinese factory workers. Um, so it, even if they have only kind of a small preference for a, a better phone that's a little bit cheaper, that's a little bit faster, like that preference will still predominate. Um, and I think it's an uphill battle to try to kind of like moralize people into doing that. Sometimes that works, but I think much better as we've talked about um, is to just uh, address the problem at its source. And then, like you said, if it's impossible to make phones that cheap, it will be. And maybe some people won't buy phones and other people will just buy more and, and uh, the workers will be better off because they had the bargaining power to leave. So yeah, mostly saying what people said, but emphasizing those aspects. Yeah, those are some good points. Let's go to one more quote from the article, and then we'll go around and get people's final thoughts. The companies that sell us stuff have decided that we can't tolerate such a slow pace, and they're right. 
as long as we always perceive ourselves as consumers, never as workers. Consumers, by definition, are out to get the best advantage they can of other people, the best results for the least cost. Only when you see other people as fellow laborers can you begin to empathize and think, well, if you need to go take care of your mother this weekend, I guess I can wait. So, no. Thinking of people as fellow laborers is kind of the exact opposite of what we want. Uh, we don't need to be thinking of these people at all, really, uh, let alone as laborers. Why should we even be thinking of ourselves as laborers in the first place? Um, so that's kind of a question uh, I can ask as we go around and get people's final thoughts. So let's go to Richard, Bethany, and then Neil. Go ahead, Richard. Well, in Europe, unions are really powerful and they have, and like, um, Austin was saying before, they have, um, the, like Germany has the lowest working hours, but the most productive economy. But, but in Germany, they have incentives to automate things whilst also improving conditions and whatnot for their employees. So they can produce a lot more and have a lot of like six hour, six weeks of vacation each year or something like that. But in the US, they, the whole uh, work climate is like, companies need to self-regulate and so we they, they don't need any like regulations on them they don't need OSHA looking over their back or their shoulders or whatever they don't need anything like that but with basic income there would be an incentive for companies in the U.S. to well improve their working conditions or whatever or else they're not going to get people to work for them period. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, and if they still get people, you know, to work for them in really dangerous, hazardous conditions, and everybody knows what's going on, then we can say, well, those workers chose to do that, and it's not really a problem anymore. Let's go to Bethany, Neil, and then Derek. I agree with what Richard just said. Something I'd meant to say before is we had talked about not having, um, perhaps with a basic income, a supply of like cheap labor in the same way. And so that might slow down products. But as we've been talking about, there, there's the flip side of having more incentive to automate. Um, which could create faster products or, or could make up the difference. And I think there are disincentives to automate now, legal and otherwise, uh, because people are worried about people losing their only source of livelihood. Um, and so it's a little bit hard to know how that those things would shake out, maybe depends on the industry and how much it really needs, you know, human labor. But I think that's, that's an important component. Yeah, so, so do we need to think of ourselves as, as workers? I mean, I think that um, one thing that's really interesting is that there's this idea, I feel like, that people have to earn good treatment by their society or like their government or something like that through work. And you see it in people talking about how like the government to do things for them because they pay their taxes and also especially because they're hardworking and like contributing in some way. And I think that contributing is important, but as you pointed out, there are lots of ways to contribute that aren't really the same as paid labor and paid labor isn't always really a contribution under the, under the hood. So I would like to see a shift to people feeling that that society is meant to benefit people, whether they kind of work a paid job or not. Um, and so I would hope that people would start to think of themselves as citizens or just like people <laughs> in, in the society that, that should benefit as opposed to this kind of implied um, moral trade-off where you're, you're paying into it in some very specific way, which doesn't really hold up under the microscope in terms of how we do things now anyway, right? So um, yeah, so that's my comment on that last question. Yeah, I love it. Let's go to Neil and then Derek. I just have, I have one, one interesting comment. I think it's interesting. We do not necessarily end up with the best products. Marketing has a lot to do with what we, we end up with. And further, there's a, there's a, a uh, historical effect. 
if you get think that this particular company makes a good product, it takes a little bit of, of they have to really foul up before you, you change your mind. You would rather buy the, from the, that name of product simply because you, you have more faith that that exists. So, so the world is not quite as simple as, as we provide. Further, in poor countries, what they're trying to do, everybody is trying to, to, to reduce the same goods. So if in our country, we get our, uh, get our the amount we want to, to buy up to a point where we're, we're actually 90% uh, of capacity or whatever in the world, then, then we will help everybody because then, then each poor country doesn't have to compete to, uh, to, to, to do the labor. And then, then working conditions will improve because each country doesn't have to fight the other country. They all will, 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 will be able to, to... Now, obviously, this is, this is a utopia and you'll never get there, but that's basically two points I wanted to bring up. We can get all the poor countries working for us instead of having them compete with each other to sell us things. And then, you know, also we can imagine that scenario, but it's also the case that in an ideal world, we would have the people in the poor countries also able to have access to the global economy uh, as consumers as well. Let's go to Derek and then Eddie. Yeah, I mean, the question is, why do, why do we think of ourselves as workers? And why, why the flip side of that is, why do we so many people seem uh, to feel ashamed of being consumers, right? Um, and that, that's very prevalent in both these articles. I don't, I don't have a final like, answer to that. I, I'm still not really sure um, why, why this feels so normal to people. I don't know that it has to. Um, I, I think, you know, a lot of some, some part, at least the second one might just be this, this word consumer that economists use. I mean, if we talk about customers, everybody likes, likes having customers in a business. Everyone likes being a good customer and being a respectful customer, right? Like, I don't, I don't think it, there's necessarily something um, inherently bad about the role, but we do seem to have this idea that like, if we're not, if we're not proving that we're out there um, contributing, then we don't deserve um, we don't deserve the, the stuff, the free stuff that we're getting by just handing over money. We feel ashamed of it somehow. And it's really worth, it's worth examining. I don't know if I have, have a good answer for it yet. I think in a world where in order to pull your own weight, have to earn money as a worker, people have an incentive to think of themselves as workers and to take pride in it. And that's just partly a product of how our economy works right now. So a question we can ask is, if you bring in a basic income and shift kind of the fundamental way people get their money, will the cultural stuff shift in response to that? Let's go to Eddie, June, and then Jared. Go ahead, Eddie. So I, I really like what, what Richard said. And I, I think if we want to solve the problem of the iPhone worker in the Chinese factory, you know, I think the way to solve that uh, is through increasing labor demand in relation to labor supply. So a lot of people... Um, you know, when you talk about basic income, there's an argument against it that goes, oh, you know, if people have basic income, then they won't work. Uh, you know, you won't have enough labor supply, um, so nothing can get made. And, you know, that's, that, that's false. Um, you know, no, what happens is that if labor supply goes down in relation to labor demand, and in fact, in, you know, businesses have lots of, are getting lots of demand, lots of, lot, you know, they need to produce lots of stuff. So they're really hard up for labor and the laborers are not so hard up for a job. Then, you know, what happens is, you know, what, we're, what we've been talking about is that, um, 
you know, the in this new world, the iPhone, the, the potential factory worker, you know, looks at the factory and if they have to deal with toxic chemicals and the pay is like $5 an hour, then they're like, you know what, you're crazy. You know, <laughs> I, you know, no one's going to work that job. And the business has to come up with a way to automate stuff, to invest in, in technology, to, to, to get it done, you know, in a world where because labor supply is so low uh, and demand is so high, the, the, lab, the wages are, are way up there. And they've got to figure out how to make their business still work, even though they have to pay people lots of money um, to work. And, you know, you don't have to worry about them not being able to do it. Um, there's an enormous amount of, you know, free capital in the world right now. They can borrow billions and billions of dollars to invest in better machinery. Um, and they're, you know, they're getting paid the big bucks. That's really what they should be doing is how do we, um, uh, you know, provide for everybody um, without exploiting anybody, without, you know, in a world where workers have a choice. Okay, thanks, Eddie. Let's go to Joan and then Jared. Oh, yeah, I just have one, I think one point. Uh, and that's to mostly to Derek's idea that because we are expecting innovation and quality products and speed of delivery and all of that, that we'll continue, we can continue to do that. We will continue to do that. But I think that we could think about it uh, in terms of the trade-offs that people make between, for example, time and quality of life and the product. So, I mean, I do that on an individual basis. People who live, you know, as artists or writers do it all the time. People who don't have that much buy-in to capitalism do it all the time. There are a lot of people in America who, who are satisfied with less. Um, and I, I mean, not that we need to make it a non-capitalist society, but it's certainly true that there's a ton of consumer waste and there's a ton of, ton of consumer buying that is unnecessary to the quality of life. I think that basic income, aside from the fact that it can be a, you know, a, um, a leverage tool for whether or not you keep that job or you can walk away from that job and all of that, um, there's also the point of people may decide that their time is worth more than the next big iPhone, if enough people decide that and can live that way. And I think Bethany brought up, you know, there's another culture in other countries. Uh, I think it's very American that we're focused on this, this kind of speed of consumption. Um, and and that, that in turn would make it less likely to have these conditions. I guess that's what I'm getting to. I, I think it's, it's all difficult to change the conditions, but uh, I think people are more focused on, you know, I can keep my life at a good level and whether it helps people or not uh, is beside the point in a way, because most people are not focused on helping the worker in China. They're not, they're not gonna be uh, making decisions about buying based on how the product's made. I know a lot of people do that. I don't know very many personally, but I know that's a thing. Um, but I think most people are um, pretty self-centered and being self-centered involves having your own quality of life, which doesn't include necessarily having the best thing going all the time. I think that's right. You brought up the issue of consumerism. We could probably do a whole one of these on consumerism. To what extent are people buying useless junk that's being produced for them? So let's go to Jared. Go ahead, Jared, final thoughts. My final thought is, is and going back to that quote, talking about people 
we should look at people as laborers. Um, and that's, you know, that's a question of, of perspective, I think, you know, looking at the Germany versus American versus France uh, and kind of what we're expecting to do and expect others to do. Um, and, and, you know, without getting, you know, too much personal detail there is, is you know, I, I've experienced that somewhat in my life, um, feeling as though, and being treated as though my value is intrinsically tied to what I produce. Um, and, and truth be told, it is uh, a cage. Uh, it is a pit. It is awful. Um, it, you know, it, it is very demoralizing and dehumanizing. So uh, without getting too, you know, personal or emotional or anything like that, um, it is critical to, to go through that and to be able to now treat other people um, better. Um, I don't know if there's a way to teach that. I don't know if there's a way to moralize that. I don't know if there's a way to grandstand that. Um, but I, I think that's something that we should all be to. Um, but again, I use the word should um, because shoulds, you know, uh, are ideal. Uh, and, and I hate to lean on the word should and, and, and get disappointed when it doesn't happen. Um, and so as a realist, I think that you know, uh, we value each other for, you know, various reasons. Um, uh, it could be physical. It could be uh, you make me laugh. It could be that you bring stability to my life through finances. Uh, it could be, you know, physical. Uh, you're pretty to look at kind of thing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was not. <laughs> but we should look at people as humans. Um, but I realize that this word should is a huge caveat. And I think it's important to realize that as we are looking towards a better society, a more human-centered uh, capitalist uh, society, as Andrew Yang likes to quote, that we set up programs that help funnel this towards reality, to buttress it with strong policies so that shoulds become reality without moral grandstanding, if that makes sense. I mean, that's really all I have to say about that. But I love the movement. I love where we are going with this movement. But I'm also, you know, utopianly optimist, but also a realist at the same time, if that makes sense. Okay, fantastic. It does. Thank you, Jared. I think thinking of workers and consumers as the same people limits our possible understanding of how the economy could work. So it kind of runs counter to the idea of basic income. And I think it's a mistake. People are consumers first. And some people happen to be workers as a subset. That's it for today. Next week, the topic is petrodollars. Oil exporting countries often sell their oil in exchange for dollars, or at least conventionally, traditionally they did. Maybe some of that is changing now. But how does that fit into the story of where dollars end up? Does that give us more room to add more dollars to the economy if it's getting kind of collected in the savings of Saudi Arabia and other places like that? So we're going to be talking about that next week.